0: Support comes from Empower Missouri's Week of Action with in-person and virtual advocacy training for affordable housing, criminal justice, and food security initiatives, March 25th through 28th. Registration at EmpowerMissouri.org WOA. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking.
1: The Missouri General Assembly just finished a contentious special session to renew a critical tax that helps fund Medicaid. And a pivotal force behind finding consensus were the women of the Missouri Senate. Senator Cindy O'Loughlin was part of this bipartisan contingent. And the Shelbyna Republican joins us on the latest episode of Politically Speaking to talk about why it's important for people with different perspectives to work together. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics.
2: We have to talk about things that matter to people.
1: I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first.
0: You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make.
1: And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me from Rolla, Missouri, St. Louis Public Radio's Rolla correspondent. I'm Jonathan All, And our special guest today she is the state senator for the 18th district which takes in a cornucopia of counties in northeast missouri our guest today is
0: Cindy O'Laughlin. thank you for having me on
1: thank you for coming on the show first time as an actual state senator you were on in 2018 as a senator elect and i'm going to try to see if i can get all the counties in your district correct you represent pike rawls marion knox Clark, Schuyler, Randolph, Sheraton, and Shelby Counties. Am I missing any? You forgot Lewis. Lewis County. I knew that. I was so close. <laughs> I didn't even have any paper in front of me.
0: <laughs>
1: well, can't win them all. Uh, there's,
0: you know, a lot, it, there's a lot of them.
2: It's good to know that the two, the two counties in the northeast corner are Lewis and Clark County. That's a good way to remember that.
1: One of the reasons we wanted to have you on the show, Senator, is we recently concluded this very contentious special session to renew what's known as the Federal Reimbursement Allowance, which is this tax on on places like hospitals that is basically used to fund the state's Medicaid program. Jonathan was in Jefferson City covering this special session, so I'm going to turn it over to him to ask the first series of questions.
2: Senator, uh, this is something that the legislature routinely passes every year and has for decades um, overall, what's your take on the fact that it had to go into a special session and how that special session ended up?
0: You know, I think a lot of people felt they were sort of caught in a vice. So the FRA is critically important because it does fund services to elderly, disabled uh, women and children. And of course, it's a huge amount of money. So one of the first things that went through my mind was the fact that I have a lot of nursing homes who really are on the verge of financial um, almost bankruptcy. And so any um, cessation of funding could just be ruinous for them. And those people would have nowhere to go. On the other side of that, um, due to some of the amendments offered, it became okay now you need to choose between supporting life unborn children versus supporting life of elderly disabled women and children and you know that's a very difficult position to be in i felt like the fra could be passed and we could separately have legislation addressing planned parenthood um, I know people talk about Planned Parenthood offering, you know, other services besides abortion, but really, abortion is their big money maker. If you look at some of the reports nationally that are available, and really, no one wants to support that. At least, certainly not on my side of the aisle. But we got, you know, we got into <clears throat> a position of which of these is more important? And I, and I didn't really think it needed to be that way.
2: Every legislator has an issue that they feel is so incredibly important that they want to do everything they can to try to accomplish something along those lines. Philosophically, how do you feel about holding a routine piece of legislation hostage as when people see it as the best chance that they have to push something that they feel passionately about?
0: Well, I think you end up with what we ended up with, which was, uh, you know, a day long uh, session filled with angst ending up at one o'clock in the morning, trying to force people into a position of choosing one population's life over another population's life. And I don't see how that's a good choice.
2: The, what you what you said would be better is kind of what the House ended up doing where they passed a uh, uh, mostly clean FRA, but then also had this other piece of legislation that would defund Planned Parenthood. Um, the Senate, at least the leaders chose not to come back into special session to take up that bill. And I know that your colleagues, uh, Senator Onder and Senator Moon, were both furious at that decision. How do you feel about the decision to not bring the Senate back to take up that piece of legislation?
0: Well, anytime that we can protect life, we should do it. Um, The way this all ended with the House passing a separate bill and then it, you know, coming back to the Senate side, the communication I got from leadership was, we felt we needed to adjourn sine die so we could get the FRA through, that there was a timing um, conflict and that it needed to be done. Since I don't have all of those details, it's kind of hard for me to dispute that. I do know that the Senate leadership did appoint a committee to look at ways to basically defund Planned Parenthood and also look into some of the Medicaid reforms that they feel need to be done. I also know that the governor offered to implement some additional rules, which would tighten that window even further to try to be sure we protect life in every way that we can. So um, it sounded like they did the best they could, but I'm not a leader in the Senate. And so I wasn't really privy to that decision.
2: You mentioned the word leader and Senate. Let's talk about a, a leadership that came from a different place. Uh, one of the interesting stories that came out of this was a bipartisan group of women from the Senate got together and uh, it sounds like really forced some compromise um, on the the Senate bill and, and moved that forward. Were you in that meeting? and And- Kind of what what was what, what's your impression of that?
0: Well, you know, if you if you're watching politics all the time, and you, you probably are, you know, in the education committee that I initiated having lunch with members of the education committee, because my thought was, you know, if we if if every time we come into this room to discuss a topic and we're all already saying, okay, I'm over here and I'm not moving. And the other side says, hey, I'm over here and we're not moving. There's never an opportunity to talk about things that you might mutually be concerned about. And I think that doing that has created a spirit at least of respect and friendship that we might not have had. So, The evening that all the women senators got together, I I was in the meeting, and it was in Senator Riddle's office, and I know Senator Shoup was a part of that in, you know, getting everyone together. And, you know, truth be known, we all like each other. When you've set politics aside, you can find things that you agree on, but you have to be willing to set politics aside. So, you know, we talked about their issue, which was um, if you list all of these medications, then what will be women's low income women's opportunity to get birth control, not abortion inducing drugs, but that was their concern. So we talked that over. We kind of came up with something that we thought would work. We had Senator Whelan come in. <laughs> Which I know he thought was a little bit odd, being the only uh, male senator in there. But you know, we had we had a good conversation with him, and it all worked out. So I think there's too much political grandstanding. I hate to say that, but that's how I see it. I, there's there's a lot of grandstanding sometimes, and instead of doing that, we need to look for areas of commonality, and find a way not to give up your foundational beliefs, which believing in life is a, for me, a foundational belief, but finding a way to navigate the waters that uh, is a little less contentious than we sometimes have.
2: I'd like to play a a little bit of uh, what Governor Parson had to say about that meeting of, of the Senate women.
0: I think having some of the women in the Senate get involved when it's talking about women's health care, I think that's a good move for regardless who it is. I think you know when it comes to women's health care, women are at this capital just as much as men are, and they should be taking the lead on this road. They know more about women's health care than us men do, and I don't know why it's always a man that's got to take up the armor, I guess, for the women to tell them about their health care.
2: Senator, uh, the state of Missouri is 51% women and uh, do not have that same level of representation in the Senate. Um, I can't help but wonder, would we all be better off if the Missouri legislature looked more like the population of the state of Missouri and there were more people of different backgrounds and different perspectives who could do things in a bipartisan manner the way that uh, the, the women in the Senate did?
0: Well, you know, in the Senate, um, every every senator has nearly the same power as every other senator. So, It's kind of hard to say, well, we need to dictate that we have this percent of this type senator and this percent of that type senator. I do think that the senators who are there need to set the tone themselves. And they need to look for every opportunity to create relationships to kind of come up with the best solution for all of Missouri I think the women we have in the Senate are um, all different, all different backgrounds. And um, I I enjoy all of them. I think the men, same thing. I mean, they, they have different backgrounds. So, really, it's up to each individual to create that relationship where you can have cordial, respectful conversation.
2: Um, you mentioned that uh, that that uh, protecting the unborn was definitely a fundamental part of your 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 belief, and um, and I want to play something that Susan Klein from Missouri Right to Life said um, about the way that the special session ended up.
0: And unless the Senate takes up and passes your House Bill two, then we have Senate Bill one that the Senate sent over to you. That will still allow Planned Parenthood to receive our federal and state tax dollars. I don't think any of you would ask pro-life Missourians to back off of that position.
2: So Missouri Right to Life thought the special session was a disaster. NARAL uh, and uh, uh, pro-rights groups uh, on this topic, um, they said that it was a great special session. With your fundamental principles reflecting upon this, how do you kind of process all of that when, when Missouri right to life makes that kind of statement?
0: Well, Susan Klein has been a warrior for the unborn and I highly admire and respect her. And I think that her position allows her to be at the center of every conversation. And I back her entirely. Um, you know, the way it ended, it didn't, it didn't have to end that way. I thought a better solution would have been to introduce legislation in January. If there were things that we felt we could do to protect life to an even greater extent than we already do, then we needed to start on that in January. And I wish that would have happened I don't blame Susan for feeling that the Senate let her down and let down the cause of life. <clears throat> but I'm not sure how to change it either.
1: I want to chime in here and ask a question that's been brought up by many Democrats, that the Missouri legislature has already restricted abortion so much that people that really care about this issue are are, are actually treading into territory that has very little to do with abortion, like restricting Medicaid from reimbursing poor women for contraception are going after Planned Parenthood for non-abortion related services. What, what, and, and they feel like this is just a way to pander to socially conservative voters. What do you make of that argument?
0: Well, you know, I, I think I go back to the grandstanding statement. Sometimes that happens in the Senate. It probably happens in the House, too. I do think that you need to do your homework before you come to the floor, and I do think that is one thing that has been missing. So if you know you're going to come to the floor with something that that someone in the Senate is going to really have a lot of objection to, regardless of whether you agree with that or not, I think it's on you to try to come to a a place of compromise, if you can. So, you know, I think restricting um, birth control is not a good idea. I do understand that, you know, some people were trying to make the case that some of those birth control methods could, could also be used to end a pregnancy. And I think not being a doctor, I'm not really certain about that. I thought that Senator Whelan's um, amendment addressed that. So I don't blame Susan Klein for being disappointed and angry. And I also understood the Democrats view that restricting birth controls may be going a step too far. I did look at some of the statistics. There were a lot of ideas and statements thrown around there on that last day that we were in session and I did look into some of the information, at least I requested it from the state. And um, state funding is not used to provide abortion. There were, according to the state, 46 abortions. One is too many, in my opinion, but those were paid for privately. So I think that's, that needs to be a part of the conversation. We right. um, passed the heartbeat bill. And um, I think that you will see further restrictions on Planned Parenthood come next session, perhaps even prior to that, if it's something that gets included in a, in a call for a special session.
1: We'll be right back after this quick break with more from State Senator Cindy O'Loughlin. And we're back on Politically Speaking with State Senator Cindy O'Laughlin. She is a Republican from Shelbina, Missouri. So I want to shift gears to the next special session. And I don't know when it's going to be. I think it'll probably be sometime in the fall or winter, uh, but it's going to be on congressional redistricting. And there's a couple of reasons I want to talk with you about this. First of all, I've talked with you about redistricting policy before you were a member of a state legislative commission before you were elected, which is totally different from congressional redistricting folks. Like, I want to make that clear. The legislature does not have any direct role in drawing House and Senate districts. But the, I think the other reason I wanted to talk with you is you you reside in the sixth congressional district, is that correct? Yeah, I do. Right, okay. So one of the topics of conversation that I think is happening nationally is whether Missouri is going to have a six to two map. So there would be districts in St. Louis and Kansas City, which are heavily Democratic, are a seven to one map, which goes after Emanuel Cleaver's district. And the reason I wanted to ask you about this is if they end up doing this, the the seven to one map, it's highly possible that a lot of Kansas City would be put into the sixth district. It would make that district more democratic than it is now. So I wanted to get your your take on whether that's a realistic possibility or whether it's going to have opposition from. Republicans that live in the sixth district that they don't want a chance putting parts of, more parts of Kansas City in there and put the sixth district at risk during a wave election year.
0: Oh my goodness! <laughs> well, I guess we'll have to see what happens. Um, I'm kind of kind of an advocate of getting out and talking with people and explaining what your proposals and beliefs could mean to their life. I think we need to do more of that, um, putting more of Kansas City into the sixth congressional district. Uh, I mean, there's there's a lot of uh, very strong Republican voters in the sixth district. So even if part of Kansas City was put into it, I still believe that uh, you would have You'd still have a Republican district. I guess it would depend, you know, how many were added, but I I believe that we have a strong enough Republican district that every voter is going to turn out if they feel there's any, um, you know, concern that something they don't believe in is going to get through.
1: I mean, do you have a preference about whether you would want a six to two map versus a seven to one map, or do you want to just hear the differing perspectives about whether? that's a good idea. And I, I agree with you, your exasperation initially, a lot of this is very speculative. And I have no idea how some of this is going to play when legislators actually start to debate this. But what, what's kind of your general hopes and dreams for this process, basically?
0: You know, I think people like to be represented by, uh, I'm thinking back 10 years ago, when I was on the redistricting for the state, And people like to be represented by someone who shares their beliefs and ideals. And so I think that that, that's one of the primary things we need to look at. I think we need to try to keep communities and counties together, because when you split them all up, um, you know, that's kind of disconcerting for the voters within that uh, split up area. So I'd like to see us try to... Keep people with the same beliefs together. I'm, I'm not. I'm not prepared to say that there aren't people in Kansas City who have the same beliefs that we do out here because I know some of them. <laughs> so I, I'm not. I don't want to say that they're the vast majority because, of course, I don't know the vast majority. But I don't have a preference. I think I'm. You know, going to have to leave that up to the people that are looking at it and trying to make a you know, a proposal of what they think is a good, a good split, I guess we'll just have to see what they do.
1: So let's move on to uh, education related topics. You are the chairwoman of the Senate Education Committee, as you've already alluded to. What are going to be some priorities that are going to go through your committee when the legislature returns in 2022?
0: Well, one of the biggest problems we have is um, recruiting teachers and retaining teachers. So I I think that will be a top priority. Uh, what what we're ending up with, I think, and from, from the people that I've spoken with, and I and I'll be visiting a lot more schools in the fall. But what we're ending up with is an inability to attract and retain teachers in rural areas. So, um, I've been I met I met with um, secondary school principals and. I meet with my superintendents. In fact, I was supposed to meet with them when we got called back to special session. So that had to be changed, but we need to be able to recruit and retain teachers. There's some conversation about, and there was legislation actually filed last year about changing some of the requirements. And so I think from my perspective, one of the other senators that I work with pretty closely is Lauren Arthur from Kansas City. And she and I have a fair amount of communication going on about how do we try to solve some of the issues in education without leaping off into partisan warfare. And if I, if I can put it that way. So we're kind of working on that. Also, Senator Shoup. Um, Senator Esslinger, she's not actually on the education committee, but she's a former superintendent. So we're just trying to gather up some ideas about that. Uh, one of one of the things that um, is currently a very hot topic is the critical race theory that is being pushed into the schools, and um, you know it's it's a divisive. Type of rhetoric that basically um, alludes to what 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 they want people to think, which is all white people are racist, whether they know it or not. Uh, they're they're racist from birth, and that our country is. Uh, racist, and our founding documents are not good because of that. And um,
2: Senator, could I push back on that just a little bit? Because I find that a lot of people who criticize critical race theory really know very little about it. They haven't read much of it, and they, they, they repeat rhetoric that other people say about critical race theory. Instead of looking into it and seeing that it is uh, an, an advocation for looking at history through different lenses... Um, and it's been a, a, a way of looking at things for decades. It's not something that's passed. You know, it's popped up in the last year or so. So I'm just wondering: is there a way to um, make sure that educators have the ability to look at history through a lot of different lenses without kind of falling into the rhetoric trap that you're talking about?
0: Well, it's not just rhetoric. If you, if you know Mary Byrne, I'm not sure if you do or if you don't, but she has gone around the state with a very in-depth presentation about that. And I myself have gone to several different schools where, it, and I actually have about a 50 page document that has actual examples of curriculum from schools who talk about, um, critical race theory in a way that's very divisive so it's not just rhetoric
1: well i want to actually change. i mean we
0: currently have the ability to teach history and very plainly talk about some of the negatives in the history but i don't think that most missourians would agree that we need to teach that our country is horrible and um all white people are racist because of the color of their skin.
1: Well, I want to also chime in here because I want to read a quote from Robbie Suave of Reason Magazine, who is not a fan of a lot of the diversity related curriculum that often gets taught in school. But he also doesn't really support legislation trying to ban critical race theory. And this is a direct quote from him. Savvier liberals are correct, for instance, that critical race theory, as defined by people who have actually coined the term, mostly exists in academia, not K-12 classrooms. This means that Republican legislative efforts to protect kids from critical race theory are actually targeting a wide swath of only semi-related progressive concepts. These bills are almost uniformly heavily heavy-handed and in some cases represent active threats to freedom of expression in the classroom. So my question for you is, I understand that people may not like critical race theory are some of its offshoots, but isn't it a better idea to have debates in classrooms rather than restricting teachers from even talking about it or teaching aspects of it?
0: Are you convinced, I guess, then that we haven't been able to do that prior to this? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I, look, I know I, you are.
2: Well no well no I've got I've got two kids who are in the public schools in Missouri, and you know the the, the a lot of the things that they are taught do not include the whole story um, and and I guess I'm what I'm wondering is uh, you know if if a, a ban on critical race theory is passed, if a, 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 t- a teacher in Missouri says to a classroom, Thomas Jefferson, advanced a lot of people's rights by advocating that a larger percentage of the population got to vote. However, he also enslaved people and, um, and, and wrote at length about how um, that the, their rights were not equal to other people's rights. So if I say that to a class, have I then given a school board permission to fire me because the state law says that I just taught critical race theory?
0: Well, obviously that has to be up to your school board. And i'm glad that you mentioned school boards because i actually have a superintendent in my area who was the director of curriculum at the rockwood school um, a few years back so he he's been a superintendent of a charter school he is now a superintendent of one of the schools in our area and He's a pretty reasonable guy, and we have we've kind of had a preliminary conversation about this. And where I'm headed with all of this is, I do think if the legislature says we're not going to have critical race theory because we deem it um, irresponsible, hateful, divisive type teaching, I mean, that's one thing, but how do you really actually enforce that? But I do think school boards should be much more informed about what is being taught in their district. And then ultimately, they're going to have to be the body that supervises that. So, you know, if someone talks about the negatives in our history, I mean, I, I think that that is perfectly appropriate. But I also think it has to be taught in a way that does not make people think that our country, um, you know, is no good, that it's that it's not the greatest country on the earth that uh, creates dissension between students of different backgrounds and color. I don't want to see that happen. So ultimately, it will be the school board looking into it and and overseeing it. And I know that there are a lot of communities in Missouri who are meeting and discussing this very topic, um, As not, not at this very moment, but all around the state, they're meeting to discuss it. And I think that's a good thing.
1: So I just want to make sure I'm understanding you correctly. Do you think that this may end up being more of a a school school board by school board issue as opposed to the legislature acting? Or did I misinterpret your answer on that?
0: Well, I think that it could be both. But I think the practical reality is, regardless of what the legislature does, you're going to have to have local supervision and oversight of what the curriculum is in your school. And I think for years and years, I used to be on, the, on a school board. Uh, basically, a lot of school board, boards are a little bit disconnected from that. And I think they're going to have to be a lot more connected. So, you know, I think it could be both. Uh,
1: one more education topic before we let you go. Um, one of the things that did not pass over uh, the legislative session was an attempt to expand charter schools, which I know is always a hot topic probably in your committee. Is that just too radioactive of a topic to pass through the Senate, or do you think that that could be revived next year?
0: I think that there are people with opinions about charter schools who have never visited a charter school and really have no idea what is being taught in charter schools. Charter schools are public schools, number one. Um, I do think it could come up again. But I think that one of the biggest issues in education, no matter what kind of school you are, are promoting or feel like is good for your student, we have to remember that education within your zip code may not be the best fit for your student. And I think we have to get past the point of thinking that if your student needs to go somewhere else, to get an education that, is, that works well for them, that that means you don't, you don't support public education. And I'm working toward that goal. You know, I'm working with, I mean, like in the rural areas, schools are really central to your entire community. So um, they're constantly uh, worried and afraid what will happen to funding if students go somewhere else. And, and I understand that, but I think we can work out something where we, where we realize that education should be student-based, not um, dictated by your zip code. And at the same time, we need to provide adequate funding for our schools. So if that sounds like both sides of the fence, it, it, really, it really is, but that's how I see it.
1: Well, Senator, I, I want to thank you for coming on our program and talking about these important issues. We'll have to have you back in the coming months and years. For all of our stories, stlpr.org. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri uh, at St. Louis. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, Jay Rosenbaum. Jonathan, how can people follow you on Twitter? at Jonathan all. I don't think you're on Twitter Senator, but is there any other social media apparatus that you want to promote about uh, following your your legislative journey?
0: You know I have a personal Facebook page which a lot of people follow. I'm not on Twitter <laughs> because you know sometimes I have the unfortunate tendency to speak before I think. And I, I'm trying to cut back on that.
1: I was going to say, it makes you an interesting person I, to interview, Senator. I mean, I, 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 but continue. Yeah. And not
2: being on Twitter means you might be smarter than us. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you know, I do I do say I try to be honest with everyone. And sometimes people don't want to hear what I have to say. But, you know, I, I try not to be offensive about it. And I'm always willing to listen to other people. And I make a great effort to go and talk with people and listen to people that I know disagree with me greatly. And I try to find a way to, you know, reach that common ground. So I, I just don't think Twitter is <laughs> Twitter's <laughs> not good for me. <laughs> I,
1: I, I, I have to I, even though I am a Twitter addict, Senator, I, I think I actually agree with your perspective on that. So I appreciate your time. And until <laughs> next time, so long.
0: From St. Louis Public Radio, this is Politically Speaking.